We're so glad you've joined us today for this teaching from City of Life Church. For information on City of Life and to find more teachings like this, visit us at www.col.tv. Now, let's join the service. But today we're going to continue this series. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. You know it's going to be a negative chapter, a negative passage when it starts with this word. But, you know, it's already like, woo. It's like when someone asks you, can we talk? I'm like, no, please. It starts with, but. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, conniving in this with him, sold a piece of land and secretly kept part of the price for himself and then brought the rest to the apostles and made an offering of it. And Peter said, Ananias, how did Satan get you to lie to the Holy Spirit and secretly keep back part of the price of the field? Before you sold it, it was all yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with as you wished. So what got into you to pull a trick like this? You didn't lie to men, but to God. Ananias, when he heard these words, fell down dead. <laughs> Plot twist. Like, it's really bad. Main character dies in the first scene of the movie. <laughs> what do we do now? It's really, really intense. Not a fun story. So the young men went white went right to work and wrapped him up and then carried him out and buried him. I love that. That's like serious church. A dude drops dead and they're like, hey, come here, get this guy out. We're going to keep going. Like that's real church right there. So they carry this guy out, bury him. And then not more than three hours later, his wife, knowing nothing of what happened, came strutting into church. Peter said, tell me, were you given this price for your field? And she said, yes, that was our price. Peter responded, what is going on here that you connive to conspire against the spirit of the master? So dramatic here. The men who buried your husband are at the door and you are next. No sooner were these words out of his mouth than she also dropped dead. When the young men returned, they found her body. They had just cleaned off the dirt from burying this other dude and they're like, oh man, all right, here we go. Oh, she's heavier. You know, like <laughs> they take her out and they go bury her. I don't know, I'm guessing. So they bury her beside her husband. By this time, the whole church, in fact, everyone who heard these things had a healthy respect for God. Yeah, I would imagine. People start dropping dead. They're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't mess with God. They knew that God was not to be trifled with. The title of this teaching today is All or Nothing. All or Nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us, that it challenges us, and that we can grow from it. I ask that you would minister to us today. And as we talk about being worshipers, let us get the accurate picture of what we're called to be, not just on the outside, but a life of worship. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a pretty tricky verse, right? It's kind of uncomfortable. Like this isn't one of those exciting verses to read. Like I was thinking, what funny story could I start with about dropping dead? I don't have any because it's not funny. <laughs> like it's not exciting to talk about people pff, dropping dead in church, especially because this would be way easier to read if it was Old Testament stuff, right? Like we kind of expect that stuff in the Old Testament out there in the desert. But this is really close to home. This is like New Testament Christian church stuff. Like these people basically live three houses down from us. <laughs> And it's, it's right here up in our face, right here up in our grill. This is Christian people dropping dead in church. That, that's a little intense. You know, like, if you think, you think church is dramatic sometimes, you ain't ever seen anything like this. Like, people dropping over, dropping like fry, fries. I'm really hungry. We're going to talk about that later. So, 
as we kind of look at some of the settings of the scene, we're going to learn some of the, the deep truth that's here. First and foremost, we kind of have to look at what church was for these people. Um, this is how the early church operated. They worshiped by meeting together, by caring for each other, and by eating together. <laughs> See, that's where I was. My mind was already there. That was church. Church was, let's go over to Bill's house and let's eat. Y'all, that's my kind of church. Like that, I would find God in everything. <laughs> and if y'all want to try church like that, invite me. We'll have church together. But think about it. They didn't have this. I love this. I'm grateful for this. But we come from a legacy of people who found a way to lift up the name of Jesus no matter what their surrounding was. Even when they were locked up in a house, we have brothers and sisters right now on the other side of the earth who can't do this for fear of their life, who have to worship Jesus under the cover of dark. And I've come to realize, and I think we have to realize, that worship isn't just this. I'm grateful for this. I love that we have the ability to express through creativity the passion and praise of God. But it's so much more than just this. Worship is what happens when we come together anywhere we come together and we lift up the name of Jesus. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is exhibited in the way we treat each other. Worship is our lives. And so these people are coming together and, and getting in each other's houses. And these are people that personally knew Jesus. Like they were just with him a couple months ago. Like they watched him die. They watched him raise again. And they're like, this is amazing. And then they watched him ascend. And he's, he goes to heaven. He's like, I'm preparing a place for you. And then like goes and flies away. And he's up in the clouds and they're like, all right, we love you, bye. So uh, you want to go to Bill's house? And that's literally how church starts. And so they go to Bill's house and they're like, yeah, it was cool. Jesus was up in the clouds and they're eating. Yo, remember when Jesus said like, do unto others as he would, you would have them do unto you? Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, I want to be more like that. Yeah, me too, man. Like, I don't know why they're eating chicken wings. It just seems like it's appropriate. But that was church. They would just sit around and talk about what they just heard Jesus say. And, and then they would go to the next person's house and the next person's house. And every time they got together, they would just keep talking about Jesus and they'd pray. And then eventually one day the spirit fell. Oh, then it got crazy. And then they started, they started being filled with the spirit. They started evangelizing. And then the church grew. But in, this, in these early moments, it's just people coming together in the name of Jesus. And that was their worship. And so in chapter 4 of Acts, they were in one of these moments. They're in somebody's house. They're praying. And Barnabas, one of the, one of the followers of Jesus, gets this strong sense in his heart. He's like, man... God's been so good to me, and I just can't keep it in. I want to do something. So he sells everything he has and lays his net worth, everything he's got, at the feet of the apostles. And he says, you know what? Take this and distribute it among all the believers. I don't want people to be in need. You know, like, I just want to help take care of everyone. And people start to say, yeah, like, I'm there. I'm with that. I'm with that. Now, this is not some, like, early endorsement of communism because history has taught us that on a grand scale that just doesn't work. But you have to remember, there were not many Christians. There were only a couple thousand at this point. Like, we could fill up a quarter of the Silver Spurs arena, and it would be all the Christians in the whole world at that point. Like, they all knew each other. And so they decided, like, it's just us. We are all we've got. And until Jesus comes back, they didn't know if it was going to be a, a day, a week, or 2,000 years before Jesus came back. But they lived like he was going to come right back out of that cloud. And they said, till he comes back, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to look out for each other. we got a lot of widows here with us. We're going to take care of them. Ma'am, you ain't going to have to worry about your kids on your own. We're with you. We're going to make sure they're fed. We're going to take care of each other. I'm grateful that now the church has grown across the earth. And on any given moment, there are millions of people lifting up the name of Jesus. I'm grateful that local churches have 
have popped up across the world and that they're equipped to empower their city. But in this day, it was a few people looking out for each other. And I love that. And so that's what happens. Barnabas is like, man, I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to give everything I have. That's the end of chapter 4 and then chapter 5, verse 1. But Ananias and Sapphira. And I think already we see a picture here that next to a genuine, authentic display of worship, you can always find a counterfeit. Right up next to a life of worship is a counterfeit. And see, that's, that's an easy point to say because we're all like, okay, so who is it? Who's the Ananias? It's not, I think it's that person over there. They got here late, I saw. First of all, you got here late too. Y'all didn't know it, but we do three songs. And then everyone thinks we do one. Like, oh my gosh, they sing at that church? So you're looking around at, at other people, but I don't think it's just about person to person. But when I look at my life, there have been seasons where I was Barnabas wanting to give it all to Jesus. And then seasons where I was like, mm, what can I keep back for myself? Instead of pointing the finger, let's look inside. Are we authentic worshipers or are there counterfeits in us that, are, that need to be exposed today? And so uh, we look at chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're, they're here, they're kind of like the Bonnie and Clyde of the early church. They get together and like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell our property. We can probably get $100,000 for it. We're going to go in and only give 50000 so that way we can get the payout that everyone's going to get. And then we got another 50000 to do with what we please. It sounds like a good plan. It sounds like a good scheme. They want to get the payout, but they want to have their own money on the side as well. They want to participate in worship, just not all the way. They want the benefit, but not the commitment. They want the wedding, not the marriage. They want the promotion, not the job. They want the car, not the maintenance. The six-pack, not the workout. See, I see a lot in common with us and Ananias and Sapphira. We want the results, but not the process. We want the payout, but not the work that leads to it. And worship is not about what I get. It's about what I give. And we live in a world that only wants payout and never wants risk. And they said, if we give it all, we're going to risk something. No, no, let's be smart about this. I'm tired of people trying to be smart with supernatural things. There is a moment where your natural smart has to end and your faith has to say, I can't do anything except give it all to God. They were trying to be smart and they were dumb in trying to be smart. And we live in a culture that sees risk as weakness. That if you give your all to something, you're going to be disappointed. I'm watching a generation of men be taught. I'm raising a son, guys. And I think about this all the time. I'm watching a generation of men be taught that if you give your all to a woman, it's weak. You've got to have a side chick. There has to be a little something on the side. You have to look out for you, man. Like, have a plan B. And we're taught that risk, that vulnerability, putting everything we have into a commitment is weakness. But if you don't put everything you have into a commitment, it's not a commitment in the first place. You're not going to watch something thrive unless you nurture it with everything that you've got. And this goes in every dynamic of our lives. That Barnabas and Ananias cannot coexist. One of them is going to drop dead, and I'll tell you right now, it's not Barnabas. In your relationships, in your friendships, when someone is 
completely committed and the other person is tr- trying to like keep things back from themselves, that's a toxic relationship like Pastor Gary and Pastor Janice taught. In business, when one person's committed to the vision of the company and another person's like, well, I'm not so sure, it's not going to work. Those two, the real and the counterfeit, cannot coexist. In a marriage, when one person is giving their all and another person's holding back, it's not going to work. You have to be committed and giving your all. You are either all or nothing in your commitments. And we live in a culture that's afraid of all commitment because we think that we're going to get burned. But commitment is saying, I don't care if I get burned or not. I'm all in. I'm committed to this. And so that's what's happening here between Ananias and Sapphira. They're trying to figure out a way to get the payout without the process. But it doesn't work. Those who hedge their bets can't sit with those who are all in. Those who have a plan B can't sit with those who have an only hope. It doesn't work that way. You know, you've ever played like poker where like you're going around the table and everyone's got the same amount of chips and it's like all in, all in, all in. When it gets to me, I'm either all in or have to leave the table. But I can't stay. I can't say half in, your turn. It doesn't work that way. Because when the pressure comes to me, if someone has set the standard of full commitment, I am exposed in my half commitments. And that's what happens with Barnabas. He lays it all out, and Ananias and Sapphira are like, oh, dang. Let's figure out a way to look like we're all in without being all in. And that's the temptation that I think we always face. You're either in this thing or you're not. And instead of trying to figure out what's the minimum I can give, we should be asking, what more can I give? How, how else can I devote myself to God? See, everyone's looking for the bronze plan. Like, how can I get at the cheapest level, you know? You know what I'm saying. You know, like, we want, everyone wants a good deal, but we're looking for a Groupon. You laughing? Because it's true. <laughs> like, oh, my God, that restaurant looks so good. Hold on. Well, it looks good, but we can get three sandwiches for a dollar over here. We should go over there. <laughs> and if you're not careful, you will mistake uh, uh, cheap for worth it. <laughs> Just because something cheap doesn't mean it's worth it. Sometimes the most expensive things are worth it. Sometimes that which will cost you the most is the most worth it. And you might find a bargain, but you'll lose more in saving than you would have if you would have spent. (laughs) And so when we look at the commitment that we have to God, we can't be bargain hunters. We can't try to group on God. Like, God, we're all together. And if we all give you half of our lives, it's basically like enough, right? Like we're all going to worship together on Sundays and then we're all going to agree on Mondays we're going to take off (laughs) and especially Friday nights. But by Sunday, I'll be good. I'll be there and I'll be with a bunch of other people who are half committed and God's not interested in half commitments. He doesn't want the sum total of half worship. He wants and is looking for lives that are totally committed to him. And worship is obedience and worship is exuberance. And neither of those things can be given in part. You cannot partly obey. Anyone the parent of a small child like I am? <laughs> Partial obedience is disobedience, Malachi. <laughs> Delayed obedience is disobedience. He's so smart. My son is so smart. It's almost like scary that I've had to coin a new one for him. Creative obedience is disobedience. Because <laughs> that boy will come up with ways to obey me that are disobeying me. <laughs> I'll say, Malachi, please go, give that, please go give that to mama. He says, okay, and he comes up and hands it to me. Son, 
I said, give it to your mom. Okay, here you go. I'm like, uh-uh, you can say aardvark. I know you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> go give it to your mother. Partial obedience, creative obedience is disobedience. See, we all want to find a way to do the bare minimum of what we're supposed to do and still get by. And Ananias and Sapphira and the Ananias and Sapphira in us always look for, how can I look the part without paying the price? How can I fit in? How can I do just enough to get the payout without having to go through the process? They want the payout. They want to do minimum investment, maximum return. And it just doesn't work that way. See, there might have been a widow in that congregation who only had $5. But that $5 was everything she had. And when she put it in, she would get the equal payout maybe of $75,000 that everyone else got. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted to put in fifty and take out seventy-five, even though they had more to give. And it doesn't work that way. We can't look for ways to give partial obedience, partial exuberance. You're either passionate about God or you're not. See, we can't be in here like, to worship you, I live, I live to worship. And then at your job or at your school, someone's like, hey, don't you go to City of Life? No, 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 sometimes. Are you like, uh, are you like a Christian? That's not passion. If your passion only exists in here, it's performance. Real passion is symmetrical. Real passion exists everywhere. I dare you, ask, ask a sports fan about their team in a library. Watch them get kicked out. Because they don't care where they are, what time of day it is. If you ask them about their, cash, their passion, they're going to get loud. We need to be the kind, of per, the kind of church that says, don't you start talking about Jesus in this library. I'm about to get kicked out right now because he did too much for me. We're talking about Jesus? Bet. I'm going to talk loud and, and strong about him because he's changed my life. We can't just be passionate in here. It has to be a part of our life everywhere we go. Exuberance and obedience cannot be given in part. But Ananias and Sapphira are asking, how little can we give and still get the benefit? We need to stop asking that question. They kept back some so they could get a payout, but also have the freedom to do what they wanted, and that's not how worship works. You don't hold back for other purposes. How often do we reserve part of our worship for something else? Someone else. My God, I worship you. You're number one. But then there's other things we worship in life as well. I think there's an, uh, a principle that every, every Christian maybe has heard at some point or another. You will have no other gods before me. I think we get that one. Like, God, you come first. But I think there's an understood principle that lies in that. And maybe we have to hear. You'll have no other gods before me or after me. Because too many of us live that God's number one. He's my number one. And then my number two is my hustle. I'm on that grind, man. I got dreams. I got ambitions. That's my number two. And then number three is Bay. She, 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 my number three. My life is for her. Number four is my car. That's my whip, yo. I love that car. And your Instagram bio just lists all of the things that you worship. As long as God is number one, we feel like we're okay. God doesn't want to be the biggest of your idols. It's not how it works. God wants to be number one, number two, number three. He wants to be the only object of your affection. He wants to be the source of worship. 
So you're like, Pastor Justin, does that mean I can't love my spouse? I can't, I can't have a car. I can't have dreams. Of course you can have all of those things. But the way that you approach them should be centered on Jesus. Do I love my spouse because she's perfect and she's my world? No, I love my spouse because Christ loved me and I show that same love to another person unconditionally. Do I drive my car because it's my whip and it's my gift? No, I drive that car because every good gift comes from the Father. Do I work hard on my hustle and my grind because I'm the best? No, I do everything I do as unto the Lord. In everything that I do, it's Jesus first and Jesus always. He's everything in between. And my life worships him and him alone. That's the kind of commitment that we're talking about. Oh, we're going to have church in here. Y'all got to sit down. Oh, I'm going to hurt myself. That's the kind of commitment Jesus is looking for. People that can spot him in everything. Worship him in everything. They don't reserve their affection and their attention for someone else or something else. Man, I feel really like led to talk about marriages for a second. Be very careful that you don't make your spouse your God. It, it don't work, trust me. Because you're married to a person. And when that person becomes your God, and you expect them to be your God, and then that person treats you like a person, you're going to be bitter and disillusioned, and mad at them for not being what only Jesus could be to you. Too many people expect their spouse to be their constant source of joy. I'm sorry, only Jesus can be that. Too many people are expecting their spouse to be their source of strength and hope and redemption. Sorry, you have put a person where only Jesus can belong. And your marriage would be much healthier if you would expect your spouse to be a person and your God to be your God. You would get things straight because you would have a connection with the one who gives you the joy that then you can pour out upon your spouse. You can go to the one who has constant grace on you and show constant grace to another. But we start to put people and things in the place that only God can fill. And here's the really interesting thing about all of this. Ananias and Sapphira could have said, hey, we're only giving part of the money we got. And Peter would have said, cool. <laughs> he says it. He says, this money was yours to do with what you wanted. No one's forcing you to do all of this. If you wanted to give half, tell us you were giving half and we'd be good. The problem isn't in what they gave, it's in what they said they gave. Because they wanted to hold back and yet they wanted to look like they gave all. Jesus called it out on people. He said, they honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. We want to say, oh, my life belongs to God. And we fool everyone around us. Like, wow, he's so holy. Look at the worship. Wow. And then God's looking at us like, I haven't heard from you since last week. Your life belongs to who? If you're going to be half committed, just be real and say, like, I'm working on it, man. <laughs> I want to be committed to Jesus, but I ain't there yet. I think we could do more with that because if you could say, I'm half committed, then you could answer, what do I need to do to be fully committed? But when you start to lie to everyone, the problem is that you start to believe your own lies. I think Ananias and Sapphira started to drink their own Kool-Aid. Sapphira walked into the exact same place her husband dropped dead and she wasn't smart enough to realize, where my husband at? Where he at? Why, why was there a fresh grave outside with his name on it? She was so deceived by her own lies that I'm fully committed to God. I love Jesus. I love, I'm giving it all. She had lied to herself that she, she, she missed the reality of the situation. We need to realize, like, I have to be honest about where I am. Jesus, I want to give you everything. I want to give you more. Show me what more I can give. That's where we can grow. 
You're either worshiping God completely or not at all. <laughs> you can't say he leadeth me if you leadeth you. <laughs> I love that song that they sang. I love all the songs we've been singing, but we sing some dangerous songs in this series. Because you either mean it or you lying. <laughs> Talking about we're standing on holy ground. If we're really standing on holy ground, we should look in our lives and say, okay, am I ready for that? <laughs> he leadeth me. Let's mean what we say. Let's let our lives and our hearts reflect what our mouths are saying. Let's let it come from an authentic place. Let's not just make noise. Let's not just sing songs. Let's lift up worship. I love that we called this series hymn. You know what I love about hymns? They take forever. <laughs> they take so long to sing. I looked at Planning Center this morning just to look at the worship set, and I was like, 13 minutes for one song talking about, oh, 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 Too many of us are trying to be pop worship songs like, I'm going to worship for three and a half minutes. It fits great on the radio, and then I'm going to get to the rest of my life. When our life is meant to be one long hymn of praise. Now, when I'm old and gray, sitting on my bed, I want to be singing the same song that started when I was in kids' church, the first moment I connected with Christ, and that everything in between would be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you're like, you still singing holy, Justin? Yes, I'm still singing holy because my life is a life of worship, and I'm not going to be a flash in the pan. I'm not going to be a quick song that fits a time limit. My life is a long song of praise. That's what we're talking about. Not something brief. Not something that fits on like an Insta story. See, we are being programmed in our culture to find meaning in seconds. And great things take time, friends. Let's be real. How many of you have started to find that 15 seconds is too long? You're watching something, you're like, they're still talking? <laughs> I have to listen to this person for 15 seconds. <laughs> and yet we're trying to live a faith for 70, 80 years. Be really careful on what you see as meaningful. Because we're being taught to think it's only meaningful if it's quick. But for us, this hymn, it's a slow roll. <laughs> it takes time. You can have that microwave hot pocket dinner if you want. But I want that slow cooker where the flavor is like all up in it. You know what I mean? Like when that slow cooker is cooking, you walk in the house, you're like, Ay, senora, lávalo. <laughs> See, the things that have been cooking for a while, those are the most filled with flavor. And at the end of my life, I want to have been slow cooking. I want, I want to reach the end of my race. I'm going to be old and I'm going to be hyper when I'm old, y'all. You just watch me. I'm going to be old. I'm going to be 110 talking about, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Like, I want to have been cooking my whole life in praise and honor to God. I don't want this quick stuff. I want to be filled with worship. That when I reach heaven, all of heaven's like, y'all smell that? There's praise and honor coming up here. Someone just finished their race and they ran it with honor and integrity. That's us, church. That's the kind of people we're called to be. A life of worship is all or nothing. And worship, we've got to do it, friends. If you're like, I don't know about the whole worship stuff, you're missing out. You've got to get in on this. Worship marks God's territory. It's a demarcation of what belongs to God. And I want you to hear this. The enemy can only steal what you're silent about. I'm going to let it percolate. <laughs> the enemy can only steal what you're silent about. 
But if you're noisy about it, how are he going to steal it? If you're marching around it like this is the Lord's, this is the Lord's. You say, that might look like Jericho to everyone else, but God told me that's promised land, so I'm going to march around these walls. You might see walls and you might feel like that ain't God's. I'm going to keep worshiping around. I'm going to clap. I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise. I'm going to march around these walls until something changes. But devil, you can't have this land because God promised it to his people. And our worship marks his territory. You don't worship when the victory has already happened. You worship to bring the victory into reality. Worship says this far and no further, devil. This belongs to God. My wife and I, we were just on vacation in Barcelona. A lot of fun. We went with Gio and Melissa, the performing arts directors here. Gio and Melissa. So (laughs) they're awesome. But we went and we were looking forward to this trip for months. And then we watched a documentary. Hmm. Y'all got to be careful about those Netflix documentaries. They'll make you forget God's on the throne. <laughs> like you're talking about, oh, I watched a documentary and now I don't drink water. <laughs> Do you know what's in our water? <laughs> I watched a documentary and I actually stopped breathing. <laughs> Do you know what's in our air? <laughs> I only breathe through a snorkel with a filter on it. <laughs> Do you want to go to McDonald's? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> First of all, be careful. God was on the throne before you saw that, and he's on the throne after. But we watched this documentary, and it said, Barcelona, the number one pickpocket capital of the world. I was like, babe, we're going to get robbed. I know it. We're going to get robbed. And y'all, I went to Barcelona, and I was like, I wish you would. I looked at everyone, and I was like, I want them to try to rob me. And I was suspicious of everyone, men, women, children, everyone. This little kid bumped into me. I was like, a likely story. <laughs> Literally, I said it all week. I was like looking for who was going to rob me. We went, we had like backpacks where like the zipper was against our back. We had like army pants. I was like, Mm-mm, we got this. But I wish I was exaggerating. Three minutes, not three minutes from getting off out of the airport. We're walking and Melissa had like this mm, in, her, in her gut. You know, like that feeling. It's like half Latina, half Holy Spirit. You know, there's a fine line there between discernment and Puerto Rican. But she was like, something not right. And I was like, oh, it's on. <laughs> I'm just looking around. And these four dudes were on the sidewalk behind us. And when we came out onto the sidewalk, they kind of split up and reassembled around us. Like one guy was up here, one guy was here. I was like, okay, okay, I see y'all. I see y'all. They thought we didn't know. And we're walking. And I've got my hand in my pocket clutching my phone. I'm talking white The half of me that's white, the Irish side, I looked it in my hand. I was white knuckles like this in my pocket. And then I was holding my wallet like this. And I was like, I wish they would. Just looking at them. And see, I look like a church kid, but I can act crazy if I need to. I gave them like the the street eyes and then the little twitch to make them think I was crazy. And if they come up on me, I'll speak in tongues. I'll say, shut up, I signed it. Like I'll make them think. Make them think I'm crazy. I got tricks, boy. Don't try me. And so they're walking with us, they're walking, and we're just staring at them, just looking them in the eye. I'm just like, I see you. I know what you're trying to do. I see you looking at my stuff, because they do, they do that quick pocket check. They go, and I was like, oh, not today. So they walk with us, and they finally get to a a block where we stop, and I'm just staring at them, just holding all my stuff in my hand, just staring at them. And then one of the guys goes, and they just scatter. And I was like, dog, we got them, we found them. That little, and they scattered because they knew, "Uh uh-uh, we can't get these people. We can't get these guys. They're aware of us, and they're aware of their stuff. And there was this announcement all throughout the week in the subways that said, the thief robs when you're unaware. And I was like, hmm. 
See, how often have we been silent about everything and everyone in our life? We're not looking, we're not paying attention to it, and so the thief can kind of just come up and swipe the things that are in our life. Worship puts our awareness on what God is doing and what he has done, and it marks God's territory. And when you're being loud about your stuff, when you got your family in your hands and your possessions in your hands, even though the house isn't what you want it to be, the car isn't what you want it to be, when you cling to it in worship and say, I thank God for this dirty house, I thank God for this car you got a kick to start, the enemy cannot steal what you're worshiping God about because it belongs to God it's listed as God and it's territory that belongs to God and so church we need to start making noise about who and what is in our life because it's about time for the enemy to be pushed back he's trying in your marriage he's trying in your kids and instead of being silent start to worship start to praise and watch the devil say we can't we can't they're praising their eyes are on it we can't steal what they're worshiping about somebody praise God this morning Come on. Woo! I got 90 seconds to land this plane. It's going to be a bumpy landing. (laughs) So Ananias and Sapphira, they're an example of this counterfeit version of worship. It just doesn't work, man. But we see elsewhere in Scripture a picture of pure worship. We saw Barnabas there, and I want to come to one more picture here before we go. Mark 14, verse 3. Jesus is in a town called Bethany, reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, and a woman with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure spikenard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They rebuked this lady harshly. And Jesus said, hey, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. I touched on this on on Holy Week leading up to Easter. And as I was preaching about something very different, this kind of revelation came to me in the the pulpit. And as I was preaching, I was like, I need to save this for later. I want to use this for later. And so this is that moment. If you're here that night, you're going to kind of hear the idea that kind of was born. But we see this woman who comes to Jesus. She has a sinful past. She was probably in some kind of sex work, a prostitute. and, And she came with this gift to Jesus this perfume. Scholars estimate that it was worth $54,000. Talking years of wages. And it's all she had. I, I kind of see Barnabas in her. He took everything, his net worth. But imagine being this woman when your entire net worth fits in your hand. It's all she had to offer Jesus. She didn't have a pretty life. She didn't have a pretty house. She didn't have the right qualifications. All she had was this little jar. Jesus, Jesus, I don't have as much as all these religious men have. I can't quote scripture like they have. All I have is this life. It's, it's messed up. Undoubtedly, this perfume was used on nights when she sold herself. Undoubtedly, this perfume represents a lot of mistakes. But she says, Jesus, I don't have anything else. I wish I had something pure. I wish I had something righteous to give you, but this is all that I've got. She comes with this $54,000, her net worth as a human. She says, what I have, I give you. She comes to Jesus. She walks into this room with all these religious men. Think of the pressure. Think of this woman of the night coming into this religious gathering. Some of these men look down their nose at her. Other men probably look away because they know who she is. They probably think 
she's going to call me out. <laughs> you know that's true. Things ain't changed that much. And she says, I'm not looking at anyone but Jesus. She walks up to him. And here to me is the key of this verse. It says she broke the bottle. See, if she were smart, if she were a good investor, she would take just enough drops to put on his head and just enough drops to put on his feet and then use the rest to get on her own feet in life. But she's not trying to be smart. She's not trying to be frugal. She's not trying to be cheap. She's not trying to be Ananias and Sapphira. You only break the bottle when you're intending to use every drop, every last drop. Worship is breaking the bottle. Worship is saying, I'm not holding anything back. And see, a lot of people in here are in a good time in life, so you come into worship and you open the bottle and you say, bless you, God, thank you, Jesus. I'm gonna give a couple drops and then I'm gonna save the rest for me. But other people in the room are going through hell right now and you feel like your life is being crushed, hear me well. Worship is what happens when you break. Worship is what happens when you're breaking. And when you get that phone call, when you hear that conversation, when you get the diagnosis, be very careful what your first response is. Because if you're going to fall, fall into Jesus. If you're going to collapse, collapse into Jesus. Let your first response be one of faith. There's gonna be plenty of tears to cry. There's gonna be plenty of hard days ahead, but let your first response be, I worship you and I will always worship you. You're good and you're still good even right now. Let that breaking be the beginning of true worship because when the bottle breaks, there's no way you're gonna save any of the perfume that's in it. So why not pour it all on Jesus? And at another point in scripture, Jesus talked to another sinful woman interesting how his track record is going to the sinner not waiting for them to come to him but he goes to another sinner and he says prophetically there's coming a day when people will worship me in spirit and in truth I believe that he was looking forward to a day like today, that he was looking at me and looking at you. And he knew that there would be a day that the church would rise and not be concerned with how we look on the outside, but that we would be consumed with living a life of worship, that we could be the kind of church that has no reservations, that worship is about giving our all, not the lowest price, but the highest price, that we would be the church that breaks the bottle, that we would be the church that says every last drop of my obedience every last drop of my devotion every last drop of who I am belongs to you and will be poured out on you church if you've been watching worship if you've been skeptical about worship I challenge you today break the bottle break the bottle today pour your love on Jesus he's worth it come on stand up on your feet let's worship today come on lift up a shout today the bottle today mark that territory mark that territory you've been silent about your family make some noise about your family today you've been silent about your health it might not be where you want it to be but if you've got breath in your lungs mark that territory with praise and honor to God come on church Worship is our life. It's our life. We're called to live this. And it's going to cost us everything. You're going to have to risk it all. But I can tell you that at the end, when we step from this life into the next, no one will regret having given something to Jesus. We will only say, I wish I could have given more. 
So let's live with the awareness that we can give it all to Jesus. Thanks for listening. Your generosity makes this broadcast possible. So if you'd like to be a part of what God is doing here, click give at www.col.tv or text a dollar amount to the number 855-997-6900. Join us again for more great teachings like this one.